You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Tonight's passage, United We Stand. So we've been studying the book of Philippians. This is a message that the Apostle Paul read around, wrote around 60 AD to the ancient city of Philippi. And um, the city of Philippi, some of you may be aware of this. Some of you might be history majors. You might be aware of the fact that the city of Philippi played a pretty important role at a very pivotal moment in the history of the Roman Empire. And it might not just be the history majors. Some of you English majors might also be aware of the importance that Philippi played in the history of Rome. Now, you're probably wondering yourself, how would an English major know anything about anything? And the answer is because Philippi shows up again and again and again in one of Shakespeare's most famous plays. Anybody know what play that was? Anybody? What's that? Romeo and Juliet? No. (laughs) Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Yeah, um, just a brief history here. In 44 BCE, Julius Caesar was betrayed and murdered, assassinated by a group of senators led by his good friend Brutus. And he's like, et tu, Brute! And he stabbed like 23 times, left for dead, on the Ides of March. So beware of the Ides of March. We just passed, thank God. I hope everybody was okay. Um, then a battle breaks out in the, su- in the subsequent year between Brutus and two guys, forces led by... Brutus, in the play Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, he's visited, supposedly based on a real historical event, he's visited in a dream by the ghost of Julius Caesar. And Brutus is there, he's trembling with fear, and he says, why have you come, evil spirit? And the ghost of Julius Caesar says, I have come to tell you, thou shalt see me at Philippi. This was part of a war between Mark Antony and Augustus Caesar were leading the forces on one side of this war, and Brutus was leading the forces on the other side of the war. In 42 BCE, they met for two fateful battles right on the plains outside the city of Philippi. And Brutus lost that battle and killed himself, and so he died there on the plains of Philippi. And this is where the, the, the play Julius Caesar ends at Philippi. Well, with Brutus out of the way, then all of a sudden... We get another war between the forces of Mark Antony and the forces of Augustus Caesar. And these guys have a battle that goes down to its culmination in 30 BCE, where Mark Antony is defeated by Augustus Caesar, and he becomes the emperor of Rome. And thus the Roman Republic ends and the empire begins. When Augustus Caesar defeats Mark Antony, that battle at Philippi was so important. It was kind of like the Yorktown. You know, it was like this definitive battle. It was the Waterloo, the the kind of the defining moment early in this war. And what he does is he bestows some special privileges on the city of Philippi. He declares them a Roman colony, which was very significant. He granted everyone there their dream, Roman citizenship. They were now citizens of Rome in the middle of Macedonia, in the middle of ancient Greece. They were, this was like living in Rome itself. These guys were self-governing. They were exempt from Roman taxes, the tribute they had to pay to the emperor. They, they were bestowed the ius italicium, 
all the privileges of those living in Italy. They could dress as Romans. They used the language of the Romans. They had coins with Latin on it, Roman coins. They had all the Roman holidays, including some of the holidays to worship the emperor. Hundreds of former soldiers then retired there. They began giving retired soldiers land in and around Philippi. So it further cemented its Roman identity and its military identity. And why am I going into all of this? Well, it's because Paul knew the people in Philippi. He knew how they were used to thinking of themselves. They were used to thinking of themselves with two identities. On the one hand, they had their geographical location. They were located in the city of Philippi, in the middle of Macedonia, ancient Greece. They had a geographical location, and yet the way they thought of themselves, their true identity was we are in Rome. We are Romans, and we are different than the people around us. And what we'll see Paul bring up periodically throughout this book is this very point right here. He says, there's actually something you guys need to take away from this about your spiritual identity your spiritual identity. Because yes, you are located in Philippi, but notice how he starts the book, how he addresses the book. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says, I'm writing this to all the saints. And we saw the word saint just as a word the Bible uses for every single Christian, not some special class of Christians. All the holy ones, every Christian is a holy one. But he says, all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi. And so he gives two addresses Every Christian lives at two addresses. On the one hand, there's the geographical location. They're in Philippi. And yes, they're on Roman soil because it's a Roman colony. But he says, your true location is in Christ. In Christ. That's the truest thing about you. And this is very fascinating. The Bible talks about this language, to be in Christ, to be connected to Christ. And it, it uses language almost like we're clothing ourselves with Christ. So here's a diagram that's helpful for some people. This is like a little picture of Jesus here, and this is you. The scripture says that the moment you become a Christian, something very amazing happens. Are you ready for it? Boom. You are transferred. Your new identity, you are considered in Christ. And that's what Paul's referring to here. And this, this phrase appears so many times throughout the Bible and in Philippians. So you're in Christ. And when you're in Christ, all these things are now true of you. You are now forgiven eternally for everything you've ever done wrong. Every violation of God's ethical law. You are adopted by God. You're now his son or his daughter with all the privileges that a a child would have coming before their loving father. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God sends his spirit to live inside of you. So you have this permanent, living, vital connection to him. You are heaven bound. You know where you're going to go when you die. Nothing can knock you off of your destination. And you are joined to other people. You now have a connection. Before this, you were fundamentally alone. And now you're connected not just to Christ, but what Scripture says is that other people are connected to Christ as well. So the situation looks kind of like this. Not only are you in Christ, but a lot of other people are in Christ as well. And you can see as they're joined to Christ, we also become members of one another, the Bible says. And so we're connected to each other. And so we have this profound unity with others. And that'll come up later as well. And we are citizens of heaven. Paul uses this exact phrase in Philippians 3.20. And tonight he's going to use a word that basically means the same thing. 
We are citizens of heaven. And so what he says is, yes, you're, citizens, you're Roman citizens living in Philippi, but you have another passport now. You now carry dual passports. You have your citizenship in heaven, if you are a Christian, and you also have your citizenship of whatever happens to be your Philippi. For a lot of us here, Columbus is our Philippi. We are in Columbus, but some of us are also in Christ. And so we need to, we need to balance these two passports. We need to live as dual citizens. And in order to do that, we're going to have to band together because we live in a world that doesn't always understand Christ, God, or where we're coming from if we're going to side with God's truth. In the last two weeks, we've been talking about, we've asked this question, what is Paul so happy about? This is a book about happiness. We've seen he's happy about God's good work in the Philippians, past, present, and future. He's happy about the progress of God's good news, past, present, and future. This week, the question's a little different. This week, the question is, what would make Paul even happier? And as he says in chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy, make my happiness complete by standing firm together around the mission that Christ has given us. Yes, the Philippian church, he, he knew there was some problems here. One of the problems was it was starting to splinter into factions. They had unresolved conflicts, festering. They were grumbling about each other. They were fighting with each other. And he says, we've got to band together, even under the strain that we're under. So let's read Philippians 1.27. He says, only, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. So only, he's like, the most important thing above all else. If you don't hear anything else I'm telling you, this is what I want you to do. And he says, conduct yourselves. This is interesting. Some of our Bibles might translate this word a little bit differently, and rightfully so. The word politumai, it has the word politics in the root of it. Polit. It means to live as citizens. It means to live as a citizen. It's the same, it's the verb form of the noun that he uses later in this book when he says, live as citizens of heaven. And that's how the NLT takes it here. Some of our Bibles say, live as citizens of heaven. I think that's the right sense of this. Paul is appealing to their dual citizenship. They already understood this as Philippian residents who are Roman citizens. He's like, actually, you're Roman Philippian residents who are also citizens of heaven. You have dual passport. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. The good news should be the central focus of this. And he says, so that whether I come and hear you or remain absent, I'm going to hear certain things about you. Yeah, you know, he was actually a little worried. He wanted to come see them. He wanted to help them through these problems they were going through. But he's like, I can't make it because I'm in prison. And some of the Philippians were worried, maybe a little discouraged that Paul couldn't make it. He also was like, I, it would be easier to help you through this if I was there. But he's like, even if I can't make it right away, I want to start hearing reports of this about you. You ready? I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the good news. And so he starts with two pretty intense terms, standing firm, striving together. These are terms drawn from the military. These are terms drawn from the, the field of athletics. You know, the second one of these is, is the Greek word athleo, which is where we get our athletics from. Standing firm was a military term where the troops are standing firm and holding their ground. And you know, the pictures that this calls to mind, standing firm, striving together. I think about the, the, uh, the phalanx 
used by the Greek army and a form of it used by the Roman army. You know, the phalanxes where all the soldiers, they would come together, their shields would be there, some would have their shields on top, the side guys would have their shields on the side, and they'd have their spears sticking out, and they could move like a human tank. This would have brought up images of this phalanx fighting side by side. And I love this image here because you think about the unity required for them to pull this off. I mean, if some of these soldiers thought, no, I think we should be fighting the battle over there. And others thought, well, I think we should fight at 10 a.m. And this guy thinks, I think we should fight at 2 in the afternoon. And this guy, you know, they've got their spears pointing all different directions. Their shields are all different directions. It's not going to work. No, they've got to be standing firm. They've got to be striving together. There's got to be a unity of focus, a unity of purpose, a unity of mission where we've got each other's backs. Paul says, yeah. We're under fire here, guys. We're suffering, and we've got to remember who we are. We are citizens of heaven, and we must stand firm together. I think about the athletic imagery. I think about rowing. I don't know if anybody here ever did crew. I read a book about the 1936 gold medal winning crew Olympic team. So interesting to see this sport. I never realized how intense it was, how much strain it puts on the body, how you're giving it everything you've got for the duration of that race, and how you have to be so perfectly in tune with your teammates. That oar has to be coming in and out of the water at the exact same pace. You've got to be striving together, pulling together. And when you don't, if one guy's going at 24 strokes per minute, and one's going at 30, and one's going at 32 strokes per minute, the oars will be hitting each other, the boat will be rocking, the thing won't even stay up. That's why they have a really little person in the front of the boat calling out the strokes to keep everybody on the same page. You know, you can't just row however rate you want to row. No, it's a team game here. And Paul says it's like that for us. We've got to be pulling together. And if we're all going at our different pace and we're all heading in different directions, the boat's going to fall over. We're not going to get anywhere. You've got to remember who you are, and we've got to stick, we've got to strive together. Or you think about tug of war. Look at these guys. This is tug of war world championships. <laughs> I always loved tug of war back in elementary school field day. You know, it's like you get in there and you got your anchor guy and you're dug in and you're like pulling together. And, and when you're all pulling together, when you're winning, you just feel like you can drag those other third graders anywhere. <laughs> but if not, you're just, you can't. You're just getting drugged along. It's a terrible feeling. And these guys, look at each one has their own, their own unique look on their face. <laughs> Intensity, pulling, striving together to win. And Paul says, this is what it's like. We've got to pull together. No one person is going to win this contest. It's going to be a group effort. We are citizens of heaven, and we need to live lives worthy of that, and we need to stick together and not allow this suffering to drive us apart. He says, in one spirit, yes, the Holy Spirit, He is the one that connects us to Christ. He is the one that connects us to each other. It's a reminder of our God-given unity. Our job is not to generate unity with each other. Our job, remember with this, this picture here where we're all connected to Christ and we're connected to each other. Our job is to preserve the unity of the Spirit, not to produce it. And there's a difference there. 
This is why sometimes you'll find, like, when I became a Christian, I felt closer to these, these fellow Christians I'd only known for a few months than I did to friends I'd known for years. There was a unity there. There was a commonness, a common bond from God. And our job is to preserve this unity. We've got to stand from in one spirit, the spiritual unity God gives us. And he says, with one mind striving together. It's not groupthink. That would be weird and creepy and cult-like if we all thought the exact same thing about everything. No, we're going to have different, legitimate differences of opinion, different strengths, different weaknesses, different ways we think it should be done. But we've got to come together. We've got to learn how to resolve our conflicts. We've got to be okay with non-essential differences. But there's certain things we've got to come together around a common goal. We've got to be pulling in the same direction, rowing in the same direction, fighting under the same battle plan. And this, this also implies we're connected with each other. We're part of each other's lives. You know, the Scripture says we rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. We're connected to each other. We're striving together. We're, we're in there with each other. It's one of the coolest things about following God is being in there with other people. I was so lonely before I met Christ. And now God has placed me in relationships and teaches me how to love, how to give and receive love. And of course, the, the, the focus of all of this, all of this striving together, all of this living as citizens is for the faith of the good news. We've learned, we've talked about the good news every week. The good news is that Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died for you. He rose again. He conquered death. And now you can have eternal life. That is our message. And Christians, unfortunately, are known for a lot of other things. A lot of other things. It's pitiful. We're known for our politics, like that's the most important thing. We're known for our self-righteousness and our hypocrisy, our judgmentalism. Christians are known for being anti-intellectual, anti-science. No, 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 wrong. That's not the mission God has given us. That's not even what God wants from us. No, we should be known for our love, Jesus said. Our love for God, our love for people, and sharing the message of Christ's love. That's what we should be known for, not any of these other things. And I pray to God that's at least what our fellowship would be known for. Sharing the message of love. We, they will know you are my followers by your love for one another, Jesus says. Yes, we're striving together for the faith of the good news. And he says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Yeah, they had opponents. Oh, yeah. We'll read about some of these in chapter 3, these false teachers. We also know the imperial cult was alive and well in first century Philippi. They would gather together. And just like we gather at sports events and we sing the national anthem, we say, I guess we say the Pledge of Allegiance. Somebody sings the national anthem, right? They were expected to stand up and say, Caesar is Lord. And everyone would be saying that except for the Christians. Because they had a problem with that. Caesar wasn't their Lord anymore. Jesus is Lord. And so they were getting dirty looks. They were getting pressure. Uh, we saw the suffering Paul went through at Philippi for, wrongfully for his faith. But regardless of the human opponents, we know that God has an opponent. God has an enemy. The Bible calls him Satan. And he hates God. And if you become a Christian, then he hates you. And he will be against you. 
He will... There's a lot we, we could go into about Satan that we don't have time to go into tonight. We've, we've spent whole evenings here at CT on this subject. But just know there is an opponent. And we've got to be ready for this. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Don't be shocked when there's opposition. You know, this word alarmed, this is the Greek word. It appears only here in our Bibles. But we know from other Greek literature. It refers to the uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. It's a really vivid word. You think about a horse that just, just freaks out too much to be of any good in battle, or really at all. You know, some horses, they freak out too much. They're not really good for much of anything. You know, a lion pops out, they freak out, kind of understandably so. A leaf falls on them, they freak out. They're freaking out at everything. A good horse needs to be steady, stable, and able to do the job no matter what is going on around them. And so Paul says, don't be like battle-shy horses. Don't be skittish. We've got to be calm, and we can't be alarmed by this opposition. Yeah, people will be upset with us for speaking God's truth. You know, if, if we have allegiance to God and His Word... There's so much in here that is going to clash against the message our culture is giving. We're not going to be on the same page with them about ethics, about right and wrong. We're not going to be on the same page with them about life and death, about, about what's worth living for. You know, you think about, I mean, you will have opponents in your life. You have people giving you a hard time. Our church has people that don't like us very much. But at the core of it is the issue of God's authority. We are going to follow what God says in his word. And we can't, we can't be shaken from that. Paul says, don't be alarmed by your opponents. If you aren't ready for opposition, you're going to get blindsided. You know, some of us, we come to Christ, and it's all happy, and there's good feelings, and there's this love and this acceptance, and that is great. But if you don't also get on board with the fact that there's a mission and there's an opponent, you are going to be completely swept away caught off guard. You've got to be ready for this. You know, where do we find in the Bible any believers that are not suffering? Yeah, we're supposed to be calm, happy, loving in the face of opposition. And if we're not ready for it, we won't be. But if we are ready for it, and if we get battle-tested by getting pounded on by opponents, by opposition, then we'll reach a point we can reach a point where we can be this way. This way that we see from Paul. Remember him in that Philippian jail? Praising God, singing songs. What, a, what an impact he left on that jailer and the other prisoners. Same thing here in the Roman jail. He's leading the whole Praetorian guard to Christ. Now he says, don't be alarmed by your opponents. And again, he's, he's writing to a, a, an audience that had a lot of military background. They knew the importance of standing firm, of striving together of not being freaked out when the enemy comes at you hard. Paul's like, it's like that in spiritual things. In fact, he says, when you're not alarmed by your opponents, that's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Yeah, you know, when somebody comes at you really hard, and you're calm and happy and loving toward them, they don't know what to do with that. 
And you know, it's like in the movies where like the villain is talking to the hero at the end and he's laying out his master plan for world destruction and he expects the hero to be terrified and so the hero just smiles because he or she knows something that villain doesn't know. And you see the smile melt off the villain's face and they realize I'm wrong and they're right. If you, hear, if you listen to stories of, of persecuted Christians, you'll, you'll hear this all the time. We had a guy named Joseph Zahn come here a number of years ago to speak awesome godly man. He had spent uh, decades persecuted by the communist um, regime in Romania. And he would just tell story after story about being thrown in prison, about being beaten by the guards, and about telling them about the love of Jesus. There was one time they pulled him in and they said, today, Mr. San, is the day you will die. We will kill you. We're going to execute you. And he just smiled and he said, that's fine with me, because if you kill me, people are going to hear about it. And then every single audio recording that I've given teaching the Bible for the past several years, you're going to sprinkle every one of them with the blood of my martyrdom. And people are going to go back and listen to that again. And they say, I wonder what this guy had to say that was worth dying for. And he said, at that point, the guards were like, we've changed our minds. <laughs> He would lead these guards to Christ just by showing the love of God, by not responding the way every other prisoner does when threatened with his life because he, like Paul, knew to live as Christ and to die as gain. Yes. And then Paul says something peculiar. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. Christ has given you generously a tremendous gift. You don't want to know what that gift is. He says not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Merry Christmas. <laughs> he says, you guys are experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me, now here to be in me. Now, this makes me think that um, these guys are getting it pretty bad. Paul says, the same conflict which you saw in me. Remember what they saw when he was at Philippi? Unjustly arrested, beaten, tremendously, a beating that could have left him paralyzed, or at least in incredible pain for the, for the rest of his life, thrown in prison. That was what they saw in him. Now, what are they hearing about him right now? He writes this letter from prison, unjustly arrested, in prison for way longer than he was at Philippi, gone through more physical suffering than he went through even at Philippi. It sounds like some of them were getting the same treatment, unjustly arrested, beaten, thrown in prison. So here we see the extent of their suffering, pretty bad. We also see the reason for their suffering. Paul says, it's been granted for Christ's sake. You're suffering for his sake. Yeah. They're suffering for the sake of Christ. And this is interesting because when we suffer, we tend to think something is wrong. What am I doing wrong? Is God upset with me? Am I doing something wrong? Is our church doing something wrong? Uh, are, we, are we heading down the wrong path? We're suffering. Something's wrong. I mean, this is the American way. We think we can avoid suffering at all costs. Or, you know, maybe, maybe we might reach a point where we're like, okay, I reluctantly accept the inevitability of suffering. It's unavoidable. I'm going to have to go through it. I'm in a fallen world. Okay, that would be a little better, I guess. But... Can we see suffering 
as God's gracious gift to make us more like Christ? Can we get to that point? Because that's what Paul says here. This is a hard one to get through our heads. Heard a story about a young believer who went up to the older believer and said, Sir, you, you seem like a godly man. Can you, can you pray for me that God would teach me patience? And so that old believer smiled and said, Sure will. And he put his hand on that young man's shoulder and he said, Lord, I pray you'd bring great suffering into this young man's life. And the guy's like, whoa, what are, you, what are you doing? I asked for patience, not suffering. And he says, Romans 5 says, we rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know they help us develop endurance. Yes, God. God allows suffering into our lives. Sometimes he even brings it into our life because he's trying to train us. James says, let let." Let endurance have its perfect work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, James says. That same joy language we see in Philippians. We can get to a point, you know, people pay good money for a personal trainer, right? It's to make them suffer in just the right way, for just the right duration to develop that muscle and to give them the results that they want. God is like that. He allows suffering into our lives, but he oversees the whole process and he's there with you the whole time. And this suffering, this can be a gift from God to make us more like Christ. Yeah, we're not just showing up to get a good feeling here. We're here to prepare for the battle. We're here to train for the big game. This life is not about a constant vacation. That's, you know, heaven, heaven's going to be a different story. That's when the suffering ends. Right now, we have a very, very short time where we're on a mission from God. And we take periods of rest, that's for sure. But there's hard times, and there's a job to do. And we are citizens of heaven for a Christian, and we need to stick together to do that job. We stick together to do that job. Jesus said, if the world hates you, just remember, it hated me first. He wasn't doing anything wrong. It's because he was doing something right. And he came to set the example. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. Yeah, that's the Christian way. Seems a little weird that anybody would sign up for that. It is a short-term thing. I mean, it's, this, the rest of this life is so short. We also know that God, you're going to suffer. God oversees this suffering if we're one of his kids. And he's right there with us through it all. And he gives us people to suffer together with. Let's think about this question. How to stand firm together? You know, what is our natural response to suffering? Some of us, we quit altogether. But other times, we turn on one another. BBC ran an article about the effect of the COVID pandemic on relationships, specifically the marriage relationship. The title was, Why, is the, why the Pandemic is Causing Spikes in Breakups and Divorces. After seven years of marriage, 29-year-old Sophie Turner and her husband filed for divorce. They had never discussed splitting up before the coronavirus crisis, but during the pandemic, their marriage soured. I was more stressed, and it was all just building up, and we decided for maybe a trial separation. Very quickly, we realized it was going to be more permanent than that. You see that? The stress came in, 
and all of a sudden, the marriage shattered. Their experiences are becoming increasingly common with divorce applications and breakups skyrocketing. Leading British law firm Stewart's logged a 122% increase in inquiries between July and October compared with the same period last year, more than doubling. In the U.S., a major legal contract creation site recently announced a 34% rise in sales of its basic divorce agreement. With newlyweds who'd gotten married in the previous five months making up 20% of the sales, the new marriage could not take the pandemic. There's been a similar pattern in China, which had one of the world's strictest lockdowns at the start of the pandemic, but it says also in countries with very loose lockdown policies, the same thing is happening. The stress comes in, and the relationships fracture, the relationships splinter, and that's what was happening here at Philippi, and this could happen to us. We could be vulnerable to this, too. When you're suffering, your secret negative thoughts about others come out. It's like, at one point I had the energy to put up with you, but I don't anymore. <laughs> I can't stand it. It's like we come in and we're already at the breaking point, and then we have to deal with people, and that's too much for us. We have seen some of this in our fellowship over this pandemic, but by and large I'm actually really proud of how people have hung in there, how people have done what Paul is talking about here. But I will say, right now would be a great time for God's enemy to, to attack. We're so close to the finish line. We must be on guard for this. We must remember who we are. We must stand firm together. We're so close to the end of this. For life, getting back to the normal stressful life that we deal with, <laughs> instead of the recent extra stressful one. We have the resources to love, thanks to God. And in fact, Paul is going to give us, he's, he's going to wrap up here with just a few pointers, a few steps for how to stand firm together. First of all, he reminds us you need to focus on your new identity. He said it once already, he'll say it again. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, we are in Christ now. We're connected to him. And we receive encouragement from that union with him. We can go to him anytime and receive encouragement. And yet there's also this community created by being in Christ, where we're all in there together. And we get, we get and give encouragement from that. If there's any consolation of love, yes, love starts with God. We love because he first loved us. He teaches us to give and receive love. So there's a, there's a, there's a vertical piece, a part of our identity that then... As we live it out, it overflows into practical daily experience. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, remember that spiritual unity he talked about before? By one Spirit, we've been put into Christ. And so we share in the life of Christ, the energy of Christ, and yet we also, as we come together, there's an energy that comes from that, the energy of sharing in the life of Christ together. If any affection and compassion, yes, God is the great affectionate one. He describes himself as compassionate. And he teaches us how to have compassion on one another too, how to, have a, how to show affection to one another as well. So Paul says, you've got a new identity. We need to remember who we are, and that will begin to flow out in our relationships. He also says you need to focus on the mission in verse 2. He says, make my happiness complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, 
intent on one purpose. And so here, again, it's not the group think. He's mentioned this before already, but here he fleshes it out a little bit more in 2-2. United in purpose. United in spirit. Intent on one purpose. Yes, he's given us a mission. And a lot of times when things get hard, people and groups forget about the mission that Christ has given us. The mission of sharing the good news with the world that needs it so badly. The great commission that Christ gave his people before he left this world and went into heaven. It's exciting to be doing something together. It's exciting. You ever have like a, like a work day where you come together and build something with a group of people? That is really fun. This is so much more than that. We're coming together for an eternal building project. And finally, he says... We need to remember who we are, we need to remember our mission, and we need to love one another. He brings it up in verse 2, maintaining the same love, and then he expands on it. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So there's no room for selfishness, there's no room for empty conceit. But no, we need to be humble. Humility is the key to unity. And pride is the great breaker of unity. Yeah, how do we regard one another as more important? How do we look out for the interests of others? Well, we think about people when we're not around them. Devoting some time to thinking about others. And maybe praying for others, for the Lord. We sacrifice for them. We think, how can I lay down my rights, my possessions, my money, my time for other people. True happiness is found in laying down your life for others. As Jesus said, it is happier to give than to receive. Empathizing with other people, taking the time to understand them, where they're coming from, why, what this means to them, and why this is so important. God is the God of compassion. He wants us to learn that as well. Taking time to encourage them. When I sit down before the Lord in the morning... I'm like, I got a little thing on my prayer list that just says, God, who can I encourage today? And I listen, and if I don't hear anything, I expect that he's going to be giving me, giving me someone or someones that I can encourage that day. Every little bit helps. And finally, sometimes we need to be the more mature one and apologize before they do. Maybe you're in a conflict right now, and maybe you need to think about apologizing before that other person does is the path to unity. Yeah, regard one another as more important than yourselves, looking out not just for your own personal interests, he assumes we'll do that, but also for the interests of others. So what have we seen here in Philippians tonight? We've seen that we are dual citizens. We carry two passports. We're citizens of heaven, and we live in a hostile world, a world that Jesus promised would simply not understand his followers. They rejected him, and the world knows that we don't belong to the world, and so it's hostile toward us. As the pressure increases, we need to remember who we are and why we are here. We need to keep our feet. We need to keep our sense of, of identity. We need to keep our sense of direction. And as long as we can keep our feet under us and know which way we're headed, we're going to be able to withstand this storm 
that has come and will come. And finally, above all, like Paul says, we must stand firm together, holding forth the good news. And there we have, standing firm together. And next time we're together, I guess we got a sub next week, but two weeks from now we'll be moving on in Philippians. We'll be looking at this great passage, one of the, maybe the deepest passage in our entire Bible about the, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Lord, I'm thankful that um, you tell us who we are and that this world is not our home. I'm thankful that you promise that after this short, short life is over, that we're going to go spend eternity with you and that you give us something meaningful to do while we're here. Lord, I pray that as the suffering mounts in our lives, that we would see it for what it is and that we would not turn on each other, but that we would be ready for it, um, that we would not retaliate or lash out or let it steal our happiness, Lord, that comes from you, but that we would have peace and joy in the midst of that. And that we would, we would band together even tighter, Lord, as we face um, trials, encouraging one another, loving one another through it, Lord, and, and standing side by side holding out this good news, Lord. Help us to stay focused on the mission and be known for what you wanted us to be known for, our love, Lord, and not all the things that so many Christians are known for, Lord. I pray people would look at us and they would know that we are yours by the way we love one another. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.